0: to start out in prayer this morning, and I want to share something with you before we pray, because it's something I want to pray about. I carry such baggage on holidays, and I don't know why it is. I think I impose on myself what I expect that others want, <laughs> and especially on holidays, because I know a lot of times we have some of our church family who have uh, friends and family that have come in. And you're just sort of hoping, Lord, please don't let Ben preach on whoredom or something like that, which, <laughs> which I've done before on Mother's Day, no less. <clears throat> so it's not on purpose. It's not like I go out of my way to find something uh, unlikely. But we're moving verse by verse through our Bibles, and it just—I trust where the Lord lands us. So. I'm trusting him this morning. This is a victory sort of message, but it—it's not Easterish in terms of um, it's not light fare. And I—I I think I what I impose on myself is an expectation that others want something sort of short to the point, easy, because it's a holiday and we have plans and we want to go eat together and spend time together. I get that, and that's just not what this is. It's a. It's going to be some heavy lifting, but I kind of feel like, man, why not heavy lift on the day that you're celebrating an empty tomb and what all went into that? So I hope you're okay with that this morning, and if you're a family member who's visiting or a friend who's visiting with some of our Crosspoint family, we do this every week. I was laughing with the guys that were leading worship this morning just for a moment. I was sharing them with, with them my angst. And the discussion led the direction of just this overwhelming feeling like we should have a cantata or something. (laughs) And we've never had a cantata, and I don't think that, I can't make the promise that we never would. We're not anti-cantata, but he just led us to really engage God's Word instead. So, again, I'm not anti-cantata for those of you who are pro-cantata. Let's uh, begin with prayer. Lord, first of all, this morning, before we climb into where you're going to have us go, I want to pray for a local church. I want to pray for Artis Heights Baptist Church and Danny Gandy. I've had the chance to get to know James, his son, and uh, just thankful for an opportunity to lift him up and his family this morning and lift this church up and just pray that you'll bless them. I pray that it'll start in, in Danny's time with you, that as he's studying, preparing to preach or teach or pastor, or some sort of counseling, or whatever it may be, that first of all, he's studying to have his heart prepared as an act of worship, and that that spills over into his marriage, into his family life first, that they don't get leftovers, but that they get the first helping, and that there's ample resources in the preaching and the pastoring, and that Artis Heights will be blessed as a result of Danny's um, time with you. I pray that Danny is surrounded by men that he can trust, that can speak truth into his life and hold him accountable as he's in that work. I pray that you would guard him from maybe some baggage that he may have this morning of people's expectations and that he can just stand and deliver and trust that your word is sufficient, that the gospel's good enough. We don't need smoke machines or um, flowery stories. We just need to tell your story and tell what you've done in Christ. I pray that you'll give Danny confidence in that this morning as I would pray for me this morning. I pray for Artist Heights Baptist Church, Lord. I pray that they are enjoying you. I pray that the journey that they are having together is a true journey, and that they're realizing that they are the bride of Christ and what that means. And I pray that whatever way we may serve alongside this church, that you'll give us insight into that. If it's just working side by side during the week, or if it's some official way that we should come alongside, or if we've just done it by lifting them up in prayer, I pray that you'll show us that. Secondly, Lord, we want to pray for a local official. I want to pray for Daniel Buskin, the police chief. Lord, I pray that if if he doesn't know you, that he can come to know you. I pray that really he is sitting among a body of believers right now that he is knowing and being known by and that he is in fellowship with you and he's united by faith with Christ. And Lord, if he doesn't know you and is not walking with you and is not walking with the people, we pray that you will bring him into that place, that you will open the eyes of his heart. the goodness of the gospel, and that he can be transformed through the gospel and through your finished work in Christ. Pray that that will spill over into his job as police chief. Pray that you will guard him from any sort of temptation um, that could diminish his job, diminish what he does. Lord, we pray for peace in this context so the gospel may be furthered. In whatever way that uh, the police chief can be part of that, we pray that he's faithful to walk in that appointment. Lord, in regards to our next few minutes, I pray for a divine attentiveness. I confess my baggage and my expectations I place on myself. Lord, I want to call that out, and I want us, I just want us attentive. I want us to appreciate the gravity of what we're celebrating today by climbing into a big chunk of truth. And Lord, I know I can't muster that. I know I can't even communicate that, but I know that the Holy Spirit can, and I pray that he will have his way this morning with his people. I pray that those who are visiting today who are friends or family of those who are part of this body will see a people that are making the most of our time, that are not mailing one in just because it's a holiday. I pray that they'll find a people that are serious about engaging this life-altering story. I pray that they're coming in contact with the people who are on a very real journey, who aren't just going to church, but are being the church. Lord, I pray that you'll work that in these next few minutes. In Christ's name we pray, amen. <clears throat> Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> we are in a paragraph in Hebrews chapter 2. We've been in this paragraph for some time now, and this morning we continue on, primarily focusing on verse 14 of chapter 2. But I want to look at verses 14 through 18 together as sort of a unit. So, that's why we have been reading this together these last few weeks. So, I'm going to begin here in verse 14, and then we'll come back and unpack some of this. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, the Hebrews preacher has just been writing to this Hebrews church that he apparently pastors, that he's not with on location, likely a little Hellenistic Jewish church in Rome who's undergoing suffering persecution. He's writing to them, and he's identifying for them their solidarity with Christ, their union with Christ, and their solidarity with Christ. And that's what he's developing right here. Since, therefore, these children share in flesh and blood, since we share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, the same flesh and blood. That, now I introduced this a couple weeks ago, or last week, this is a henna clause, in order that, so that, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That's where we're camped out, right there. And here's another one. And that he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. If he was going to help out angels, Jesus would have become an angel. But he didn't likewise partake of angelish, angeldom. He partook of flesh and blood because it's the offspring of Abraham that he helps. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We are considering right now the first of three purposes of Christ taking on flesh and dying. This passage isn't exhaustive in exposing all the reasons that Christ took on flesh, but it is very thorough in dealing with three things. And they're brought out by what I just mentioned, the Greek a clause, that, so that, in order that, for the purpose of. That's the way that word is often translated, and here in this first case, it's translated that. So, the first purpose of Christ taking on flesh and dying, that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The second purpose is that He will deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And the third purpose is in verse 17, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. This last week and this week, we're camped out on the first purpose, that through shearing in flesh and blood, that through dying, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Seems like it would be a really straightforward sermon. In fact, as I was preparing weeks ago, I was anticipating a single Sunday where we sort of dealt with Satan getting his behind whip. Kind of a cheery, cheery, man, yeah, let's go, charge. And the more and more I studied, the more and more I realized this is complicated. It's not so tidy because there are other passages also in our New Testaments that sort of paint a different picture. Here's just a few of them. Just listen. First Peter five eight. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He doesn't sound so destroyed right there, does he? Here's another one. <coughs> Ephesians six twelve, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He doesn't sound so destroyed to me as you read that passage. Here's another one, 1 John 5 19. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What? He doesn't sound so destroyed to me. Here's another one, 2 Corinthians 4 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. It's difficult. It's not a no-brainer. It's not an easy reality to consider because we have these other developments. So what, in fact, is being said here in chapter 2, verse 14, that he took on flesh and blood and that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil? Is he talking figurative? Is he metaphor? Is it just sort of a, he just reckons it so, but in reality it doesn't play out? It's where I've been spending gobs of time trying to wrestle with this. So, last week, we dealt with the first offering of this consideration that dealt with what actually took place in the destruction of Satan. What does destruction of Satan actually mean? Last week, we considered and realized that it doesn't mean that he's annihilated, clearly, given these other passages. Last week, we dealt with the first thing to consider in what this destruction means with four realities that we brought out. Before his incarnation, before he shared in flesh and blood, before he died, we dealt with three things that he had before that now Satan doesn't have because of Christ's incarnation and cross. Those four things last week, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I'm going to hit them quick. His role as accuser with access. He doesn't have that role anymore. There's no more accusations for those who are united by faith to Christ because we wear his righteousness. So, Satan has nothing to say. We have new clothing. We don't have dirty garments anymore because they've been replaced with the righteous linen of another. So, Satan can shut it in regards to God's people. Amen? Secondly, His rule over the nations has changed. We looked last week at this very real development where he's tempting Christ with, I'll give you the glory and the rule of the nations, implying that I've got it. And Jesus, in his resisting that temptation, said, no, it's not time yet. I'm going to earn it. And that's exactly what he did in the cross. And now the nations are Christ's. He says, all authority now has been given me. This is after his cross. At the end of his work, he's about to ascend. All authority on heaven and earth has been given me. Now I send you with that authority. He earned it in the cross, and now you go to the nations because they're mine. Go get them. A very different worldwide reality as a result of the cross because Christ is now seated in incession, not Satan. And third, his role as general of a demon army. We considered last week that that demon army is now a defeated army. They may still hold out in the mountains of the Philippines like Hiru Onada, fighting for 30 years after World War II was over, up there with his 500 rounds of ammunition and his clean carbine weapon, plinking at people. But it's a pitiful fight is what it is because they've already been defeated pitiful, but they're still shooting. And fourth, we considered his role as murderer. His crooked work as a murderer was overturned by Christ. Corporate slavery, worldwide slavery to sin and death was over, and now life reigns in Christ. We considered last week what destruction means, and we brought out at least those four things, and there are more. This week, we're going to deal with two more things when this this destruction took place and how it plays out for God's people. We're going to deal with those two things today. When the destruction took place and how it plays out for God's people. When, I'm going to tell you right now, when is an uber important question. It seems like it might be a given, but it's not a given. I would say that most of us in this room would agree with these passages that brought out the destruction of Satan, like where we engaged this last week. We have a hearty amen after those four realities that are transformed because of the work of the cross. But I would say most of us in this room are expecting a very real, very certain destruction of Satan when Christ comes back, right? Most of us in this room are expecting that. So, in asking this question, when did the destruction of Satan take place? It's an important question. If you expect, for example, the destruction of Satan is going to be a future reality, I would offer, and I'm going to offer it humbly and carefully because I think I've been there, you're not going to expect much from Christ now. You're going to expect more, in fact, from Satan in the next Millennia, or however many thousands, hundreds or thousands of years it is before Christ comes back, you're going to expect more of Satan than you are of Christ. That's a hard thing to, re- to, to reckon with, and it's one we're going to explore here in these next few minutes. This is a very important question. When did the destruction of Satan take place? Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, when you hear folks refer to the fall, they're speaking of this chapter in Christian sense when they're speaking of the fall. They're speaking of what takes place in this chapter, the fall of man. I don't want to assume that everybody knows what that is. We're speaking about man's first sin, how sin and death entered the world. And this is the chapter on that account. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. If you're familiar with the story, you know what happens next. God comes looking for them in the cool of the day, and they're actually hiding. God finds them as if they could hide from God. God finds them and asks them some questions Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man begins the earliest version of the blame game. The woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's not only the woman's fault, it's your fault for giving her to me, God. And then the woman follows his lead. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate and she blames the serpent. It's a very familiar story. It should be familiar to all of us because it's a story that's your story as well. Satan's seduction of Eve, and then this front row seat to the fall is Satan sitting there on a front row seat as man sins for the first time and introduces death into the world. In some ways, this is a win for Satan. In some ways, this is a win for Satan. Now, I'm going to say this it is an allowed win. It's only by God allowing it that he won there. But it is definitely a W for Satan. And then, just as God promised in verse 19, Adam and Eve die. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. A just God promised that you'll die if you eat from that tree, and sure enough, they and we die. But in the same chapter where he meets out punishment for Adam and Eve, he also makes a promise to the serpent. Look at this promise in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, <clears throat> cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. I don't know how he got around before that, but apparently something other than slithering on his belly. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, here are the consequences for Satan. <clears throat> I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This passage right here, this very last passage, this promise, he shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel, is what's called the proto-evangelium. It's the earliest picture of the gospel in our Bible. The proto-evangelium, because here God makes a promise To Satan. Here he promises that while Satan would inflict injury on the offspring of Eve, Eve's offspring would ultimately crush his head. He's making a promise right here that the offspring of Eve will have his day. Now we like the sound of that. The only problem is Satan is batting a thousand before and since Christ. Without Christ, he's bad in a thousand. You like all these sports terms I'm using. I see Aaron Hamilton smiling up there because I'm such a sports fan. <clears throat> Satan's bad in a thousand because no one's righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. The heart is deceitful above all else. Who can know it? So Satan's bad in a thousand. I don't need Adam and Eve to be guilty because I'm guilty on my own. So Satan's bad in a thousand. So, in regards to the offspring of Eve evening this thing out, can't depend on me, can't depend on you, but then there's Christ, then there's Christ. The offspring of Eve would indeed have his day, and that day was accomplished in Christ's incarnation. And work. First John 3 8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, because no one else could. The reason he appeared is to destroy the works of the devil, to fulfill the proto-evangelium promise. That's exactly what he did in his life and in his death. Let me show you how this unfolds. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to show you sort of a bird's eye view of some of the things that develop between Christ, the offspring of Eve, and the offspring of Satan. This war goes on throughout our entire Bibles, but in the Gospels, it really comes into focus. The war that develops over the course of our Bibles up until the gospel is really something that illustrates exactly what I'm talking about, that Satan's batting a 1,000. Things aren't going very well. Israel, God's chosen people, doesn't even do very well. Good king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, good king, bad king, king, bad king. Assyrian invasion, Babylonian exile. Things aren't going well. And then things begin to come into focus and this war between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of Satan in our Gospels. Look at Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. And he, that would be Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick. Those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons. It's all through our Gospels. This demon behind whipping, one right after another. Here's another. Chapter 8. I'm just going to stick with Matthew since we're in it. Matthew chapter 8. <clears throat> A few pages over. Beginning in verse 16. <clears throat> That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Look over at verse 28 of the same chapter. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, "'What have you to do with us, O son of God?' Offspring of Eve, who's going to make things right? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them with a word, Go. Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they cheered for him. Actually, they didn't. They begged him to leave their region. They preferred those demons to be boxed up in a couple of scary dudes. Than to let those things out. Christ is it. Man, I got so many things that are entering my head, and none I can really say from the pulpit, in regards to what he's doing to the bad guys right here. He's whipping them. Let me just say it like that. He's putting them to open shame, he's whipping their heinies. Turn over to Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. This is my favorite one because of the conversation that takes place after. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. These guys, they know it all. They got it figured out. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. That doesn't even make sense. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? In other words, they don't. Who's casting out demons before Jesus? Nobody. Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Man, there's example after example where Jesus, in, in his ministry, his earthly ministry, is cleaning house on Satan and his demons. They're jumping like fleas off of a newly treated host. If you ever have a dog that has fleas really bad and you treat them with something like some sort of heart not heart guard, some sort of uh, parasite dip or something, you see those jokers flea just jumping everywhere, that's what these guys are doing, the demons are doing. Jesus shows up and they're jumping off like fleas. Look at what develops. This explains what's taking place right here. Jesus is going to explain, here's what I'm doing. Verse 29, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. That's a key word. Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder, I love that word, he may plunder his house. What we've been looking at here in these Matthew examples of these demons being cast out, that's example after example of plundering the strong man's goods. Because the strong man has been bound. That's key. The strong man is bound. The significance of Christ casting out demons is the strong man is bound and the kingdom of God has come. Then, I want you to see this. This is important. Then in his earthly ministry, in his incarnation, and what he's about to go do in his cross. He is functionally binding Satan. He's casting out his demons. And in so many ways, he's saying, Satan who? Satan who? Turn to Revelation chapter 20. If there's a part in this sermon that I've been really nervous about, it's this part. And it's not because I'm not confident about it, but it's because I can just tell right now, I just know paradigms don't come down easy. We love our paradigms, and we don't even know that we love them. That's what makes them difficult. We don't even know that we're really connected to them. Revelation chapter 20, I've taught through, in fact, preached through the first three chapters of Revelation and taught through the rest of Revelation. And a few years ago, how I taught Revelation was that the first three chapters took place at a real historical event. It played out with real churches, Laodicea, you know, churches like that. Letters written to real churches, the real names mentioned, but then beginning in verse four through the rest of the book, here's the way I taught it as a future reality. As a future reality when Christ comes back. I would bet that most of the people in this room, if you've ever studied Revelation, you learned it that way. I would bet most of you would be what we would call, there is a name, I'm going to give these names. Don't be afraid of these names. They're just, they're they're shorthand for an understanding of the end times. Premillennialism amillennialism, and post-millennialism. The premillennialist, I'll tell you right now, before I read this passage in Revelation chapter 20, premillennialism teaches that Christ returns before the end of history to inaugurate an earthly kingdom that will last a thousand years. Does that sound familiar to most people? I, I want... Let me see some nodding heads. Some are like, man, I don't even know. Yeah, but some of you've heard that. Some of you've been taught that. I would say most of you have been taught that. That Christ is going to return some point in the future, and that he's going to reign for a thousand years, and that Satan is going to be bound at the beginning of that thousand years. That's premillennialism. If you've read the Left Behind series and you're like, man, that's what I believe, that's what that's that's where you land. Because that's the way the left behind series writes. That's the way it reads. That's the doctrine of the Left Behind series. <laughs> I use doctrine loosely. Okay? All right? That's premillennialism. Now, before I read Revelation chapter 20, I'm going to share the other two views. And again, don't be afraid of these views. I'm not teaching a view. I'm preaching the truth. But in some ways, I have to call out what may not be true. First was premillennialism. Second was amillennialism. Amillennialism denies an earthly kingdom age and says the coming of Christ is the end of history, period. When Christ comes back, He's going to rule and reign forever, period. This view places the binding of Satan not as a future event, but as something that happened in the incarnation and cross. It places it back as a past tense thing that happened at Easter 2,000 years ago, okay? However, This view says that it was reckoned then, but doesn't really play out in reality until Christ comes back, and Satan really gets it then. You heard me talk about the already and not yet. This view would be real light on the already and real heavy on the not yet. Satan's going to get it. He was reckoned back here at the cross, but he's really going to get it in the end. And then there's the third view, post-millennialism postmillennialism agrees agrees that Christ comes at the end of history okay agrees with the amillennialists there it also agrees with premillennialism that there will be a kingdom of God on earth and in time but the postmillennialist believes that Christ is bringing in his kingdom through the work of the holy spirit in the church and then the return to this world at the end of history when God's kingdom purposes have been fully realized. The post-millennialist really, frankly, is sounding a whole lot like the Hebrews preacher that's saying, while we don't yet see all things in subjection under his feet, we see him placing things in subjection under his feet. It sounds a lot like the parables that talk about the mustard seed, the kingdom of heaven being a mustard seed. It's wee, but then it grows into a big tree, or the parable of the leaven, just a wee bit of leaven, that leavens the whole loaf. The post-millennialist is thinking that, man, Satan was bound completely and absolutely in the incarnation and cross. I shouldn't say completely. The post would agree that there's going to be a time where Satan really is going to get finished off. But he's going to be heavy on the already The post-millennialist is going to be real heavy that Satan was spanked already in the incarnation and cross. That when Jesus says that he's binding the strong man and plundering his goods, that he really is. That he really has bound the strong man. That all these other passages that deal with Satan being around, prowling around like a roaring lion, roar, God of this world, blinding minds of unbelievers. While he still does those things, he's not bad. As he bad, like, woo. we as Christians need not fear him if he's already been bound. We can do what James says: resist Satan, and he will do what? Flee from you. Flee. Yeah, like a parasite leaping off of a host. I'm not telling you which ism I am, but I'm going to tell you right now, I like the last one because it's optimillennial. Optimillennial. The former are pessimillennial, frankly. Now, finally, I'm going to read Revelation chapter 20. And I'm going to read Revelation chapter 20 as if... The strong man has already been bound. Think about that for a minute. As if the strong man has in fact been bound and his goods are being plundered. Listen to this passage now. Don't read it as a future event, just for the moment. Even if you do personally think, oh, this is going to happen in the future. Park that just for a minute and listen to it. Then I saw an angel... Now, Christ is often referred to as an angel, like the ultimate uber angel, the ultimate uber messenger, coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. The only other being in the book of Revelation that has a key is Christ. He's the only one with keys. He's like the janitor with the big, you know, key. He's the only one who has them. And he seized the dragon. I love that. Sounds like plundering to me. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. You hear that word? Does anybody else sound familiar? Bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released For a little while, I want to introduce to you, maybe for the first time you've ever considered it, is the possibility that this binding of Satan has already taken place and that we are living in a millennial reign now, that Christ is, in fact, seated and in session now, just like the Hebrews preacher says that he is. That while we don't yet see all things in subjection to him, like the mustard seed, like the leaven, that we're moving in that direction. And the instrument that he's using to advance the kingdom is the gospel and the church. Maybe the first time you've ever considered those sort of realities. Now, I'm gonna tell you right now, the book of Revelation is not tidy. Anybody that tries to systematize the book of Revelation, make it linear, put it on a timeline, there's gonna be someplace where it breaks down terribly, horribly. So don't be in love with a system. But let the images of Revelation hit you. And the passage in our Bible that develops the binding of Satan is where we just considered over there in Matthew. And the only other passage where he's bound is right here in Revelation. Where you place the binding of Satan will play out. You're going to see in just a minute. You're going to see it. Now, I'll show you a few more things about when, I believe, this binding and defeat of Satan took place. Turn to John chapter 12. <clears throat> John chapter 12, Christ has entered Jerusalem on his final week. If you look in that chapter about midway through, if you have a little heading there, it says triumphal entry. He's entered Jerusalem. He's going to the cross, and his language is changing. Up to this point... He's been in the midst of his earthly ministry. This last week, though, he starts describing an hour. He calls it his hour. That's not one hour in a strict sense, but it's his suffering is what he's talking about, his trials and his crucifixion. Let's see what Jesus says about when Satan's head gets crushed, connecting back to Genesis chapter 3. Let's see what Jesus says in John chapter 12, looking at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He's speaking about his cross. A few days later, it's coming. And look down in verse 31. Now, in this hour, is the judgment of this world Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, he's talking about his cross there, will draw all people to myself, even Greeks, if you remember the story I went last week. Now, as I'm lifted up, the ruler of this world will be cast out. All that he fouled up in the garden... Will be made right. All that he made crooked will be made straight. It will be reconciled right here in this hour. In a corporate sense, the world is saved here john the baptist when he saw jesus coming he said behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world that's going to take place right here in this hour and this ruler is going to be destroyed the one who had the power of death will now no longer have the power of death for death will no longer reign on this earth but life in christ it happens at his cross man that's key that's so key See what Paul says, Colossians chapter 2. You can just listen. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. The original language, it says it, it's speaking of His cross. He triumphed over rulers and authorities and put them to open shame in His cross. You're going to see how important it is that we see that this was the point in time when Satan was destroyed. Jude number 6 says this. Even his demons are bound from this point on. Listen to verse 6 of Jude. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Here's another passage in Second Peter. I can find it. Another example of where these demons are now, these scary demons who make movies about. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. This was accomplished in the cross. I want you to have a whole new view of what actually took place in the cross and a whole new view of where you put Satan. Because we as a church give him far too much airtime. We give his demons far too much airtime. Not realizing that we're walking in a victory right now. And Satan has been defeated. So what does this... Mean When you consider Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14, our original passage this morning, there's so many examples in here, that so many things in here that bring out this reality of it taking place in his death. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That's the first verb. That he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And the third verb, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. All three of those verbs take place through his death. So we have to put the destruction of Satan right there at his death. He destroyed the strong man, bound the strong man, plundering his goods through his incarnation and death. What does this mean for Christ's church? You've done the hard work this morning. The rest of this is going to be easy. You might wonder, man, why did he spend so much time developing that? Because I promise you, you have some paradigms that are playing out in your life right now that reflect otherwise of where I've gone in these last few minutes. So if you've done the work of engaging, you're about to get the goods. Why does this have any part to play in Christ's church? How does this play out that Satan was destroy, destroyed at the cross? What are the implications? I'm going to share with you two. The first, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> The implications, first of all, is that church matters greatly now. I would bet most people in this room, even if you're a family member visiting some of your family today, and you're like, man, I'm glad they're going to church. Some of you may not, may not be part of a local church. You probably still have a high view of church. You're probably like, no, nah, I'm, I'm glad my family's going to church. I bet there are folks in here that probably would acknowledge that church is a good notion. But what I want to show you in these next couple minutes is that church is connected to this victory. And I'm not just talking about the idea or the notion of church, but I'm talking about church with real people that have real BO. I'm talking about church with real people that bring stuff to a potluck that you can't even identify. <laughs> I'm talking about real church that have real people with quirky habits. With real people that have kids that are sometimes disruptive and disobedient. I'm talking about real church. I'm not talking about the notion of it. I'm talking about real people. I want to show you that the church is the product of this victory we've just engaged. We are the spoils of this victory over Satan. Listen to this passage, man. I love this development right here. Ephesians is like the go-to passage to understand the church. Somebody wants to preach or study the church. Ephesians is not the only place to go, but it is a really thorough handling of what the church is and how it should operate. And what actually how it became. And here's how it became. Listen to this passage. In chapter 4, verse 8. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts men what i want you to see in these next couple of minutes is i want you to see this victory connected to the church he led host a host of captives is clearly speaking about his defeat over satan and his demons whenever an ancient warrior would whip somebody else in battle they would take their warriors and they would have a parade where they paraded them into their capital like the winner's capital And they would often have them like tied up, and they're getting bumped around, half-dressed, and all beaten and bloodied, and they're put to open shame. Sound familiar? And in Christ's victory over Satan, he leads one of these processions with Satan and his minions behind him, all bloodied and bruised and defeated and beaten. And it says, and he gave gifts to men. So, in this victory parade, not only is he parading behind him the people that are the beings that were whipped, but he's also passing out blessings. He's giving gifts to men. Let's see what these gifts are. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. He goes from one thought having to do with destruction of Satan and his demons to giving gifts to the church for the building up the body of church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. He's giving these to the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part's working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That is church 101 right there. Paul connects what the church is about. It's a body of believers that are connected to each other like parts of a body. That's how intricately, that's not the word, intricately, exhaustibly connected we are to each other. Like your body has an integrity as you're sitting there right now, and he connects it to this victory over Satan. I've never made that connection to see the, the beauty of the bride, the connectedness of the bride, the character of the bride of speaking the truth to one another in love, connected to his victory over Satan, but it's right there. It's because we are the spoils of his victory. One of the things, if you've done the work to engage this this morning, you have to walk away with this reality that, what is a Wait a second. If this victory is connected to the spoils and the spoils is the is the church, then you can no longer have a view of a church just being a place where you go. You can't. You're the spoils of his victory. You're not a place to go. You're not something that's in your iPhone, that's on your schedule. You're a people. You're an identity. For those of you who have a notion of church being a good thing, but you're not part of one in a meaningful way, like my hand is connected to my forearm. If you're not part of a church in a meaningful way where you are knowing and being known. If you're not part of a church where you're speaking the truth in love or you're spoken to in love truthfully, and you like the notion of the defeat of Satan, there's a huge disconnect there. You like the notion of Satan getting his behind whipped? Who doesn't? Connected to the church. We're the spoils of the victory. We are. Little cross-point fellowship with people with BO, armpit, sweat. I have it every week. I'm like, man, how did that happen? <laughs> Nathan Compton came up to me once and said, Man, what happened to you? I preached. I stink. <laughs> it's real people with burp, with lettuce in their teeth. People that will let you down. People that have funny hairdos that are sometimes a distraction in corporate worship. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you, it's not the notion. It's the real people. We are the crowning jewel of his victory. Look a few pages before this. Ephesians chapter 1. <laughs> Mmm, this is so good. I hope you get this in this next point. I mean, I hope you get the rest of this implication and this next implication, because I'm going to tell you what, last week was sort of like medicine on wounds. You're like, okay, yeah, Satan got his due, yeah, mmm. This week is, what are the implications? When did it take place, and what are the implications? And I'm telling you, it's charge developing. It's course directing this week. Listen to this passage from Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's writing to them about what he prays for. Listen to what he prays for. This passage was such an encouragement to me to press on in this sermon today, knowing that people might be thinking about other things and get-togethers and stuff to press on anyway. Listen to what he says. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you. Here's what I do. I'm remembering you in my prayers. And here's what he's praying. Praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Man, that's a no-brainer. Got it. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, okay, that's cool, that you may know what is the hope to which He's called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, the church. According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places where we know he is right now. Far above all rule, Satan, who? Far above the strong man. His goods are getting plundered. He's placed. He's Seated far above all rule and authority, all power and dominion, above every name that's named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to who? To the church. Not the notion of it. To us. He gave it to us. To the church, his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see that victory, that place is seated, connected to us, the church. Some of you who are just kind of visiting maybe because it's Easter, I'm glad you're here, but you better find a church home. It's okay if it's not us. There are other churches, good churches around, trust me. It's not, I'm not trying to feed some monster. We're not building a dynasty here. I want the kingdom to grow. If you're hearing this word today and you're like, man, I ought to be part of this trappings of the victory. I ought to be engaged to this body because of what he did. Yeah, I like the thought of the, the, the defeat of Satan. So I ought to love the church and then maybe go find one to be part of. Man, if you're a family member visiting some of your other family today and you're not part of a local church, wherever you live, please go engage it. Not the notion of it. Real ones with real things salad and stuff. Real people. We're the trappings of the victory. I'm almost done with this point. Revelation 21. Man, oh man. When you read Revelation chapter 20 as something that may have already happened as in the binding of Satan, that had a large already, that still has some not yet, because he still has some influence, there's no doubt about it. But if you read Revelation 20, as he's bound, the strong man is bound in the work of the cross and his incarnation, has already happened largely. Imagine reading chapter 21 as already happened. I've read chapter 21 of Revelation a million times as a future reality. Read it right now as a present reality. Listen. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem. How many people have ever read about the New Jerusalem? Like, yeah, man, that city's going to be awesome. I'm pining for that city because it's going to be so cool. We won't even need the sun. I don't know how that's going to work. We don't even need light bulbs. Man, it's going to be cool. I've I've dreamt about this city. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Listen, prepared as a bride? Huh. Now, just kind of scratch your head over that. Prepared as a bride. Keep that in mind. For later on as we read, this holy city prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And just think for a moment how many times the church is referred to as the bride. A holy city prepared, adorned for her husband as a bride, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That'd be a great definition for church right there. The dwelling place of God with his people. They will be his people and he will be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Who hadn't read that as a future thing? I bet most of you have. Think about it right now as possibly a present reality. Listen to verse 9. Verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. You're like, okay, cool. So he's shown me the new Jerusalem, and it's awesome. No lamps. Really cool. Now he's going to show me the bride. You would hope the bride is going to be there, right? Right? So, he says, okay, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So, imagine you're John. You're like, okay, I'm ready to see her. I hope she's not homely. I hope she's as pretty as she should be. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. uh, I thought I was going to see the bride. You just did. The bride is the New Jerusalem, the bride is the city of God, the bride is where God lives. You're going to lead me off and show me this beautiful bride that's prepared for her husband? Okay, I'm looking for her. And then he shows her the new Jerusalem. Here it is, right here. And then in verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, the nations will walk. What did we say last week? Jesus says, the nations are mine. They're mine. Go get them. Go ye, therefore, all authority's been given me. Go get my nations. By its light, the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Think of that in terms of the church. and Tell me that doesn't get get you excited. How many of you have been on the far corners? Does that get you excited to think the nations gathering in the church? man. And the gates will never be shut, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, and nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable. Here, practicing detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. When you read Revelation chapter 21 in light of what Christ, we believe Christ already did, That thing comes to life. Is there an already and a not yet? I believe there is a not yet. I believe there's going to be a new Jerusalem. But there's a big old fat already that's often diminished because we're pining for heaven, not realizing we're walking in a little version of it. Not realizing the church is heaven on earth. Some of you may have an unsavory feeling when you're thinking about church. You're like, I just don't want to laugh out loud. But on the inside, I'm going, that's a laugh. Because I've seen hell in church. Some of you are thinking that. Well, maybe that's because that church gave Satan far more sway than he should have had. Maybe it's because that church did not resist Satan and he did not flee because we didn't see him as bound. Because we're pining for when Christ comes back and he's really going to do him in because we thought little of the cross. (laughs) Do you hear that? I get it. If your thought is, "Man, my church experience has been ATWL." So, hmm. it's easy to hear but hard to believe. Believe it. This is the way it's supposed to be is we are a little slice of heaven. If the church puts off this victory and binding over Satan as a future reality and just a past notion, then we'll have a low view of the church. And it might just be a place you go or another activity in your schedule book. It also is going to be a bunch of beat-down, poor-mouthing people. Man, I sure can't wait till Jesus comes back. Because times are hard, ain't they? Yeah. My job is a bummer. and marriage is in the ditch. A bunch of poor-mouthing people going through the motions. That's what it plays out. If you don't see Satan is bound and defeated already, and Christ is seated and in session, then you're like, man, I sure wish I had something to help me with all these problems, not realizing you have the goods. You have the gospel. You have the thing that he's given them. All authority has been given me, and now I'm giving you all that authority. Go ye therefore and make disciples with this gospel of what I've done. If you put it as a future reality, you're going to have a low view of those things. And you might resort to trying to find some hooks to get people in the church, like smoke machines, funny stories, programs. Those are a good hook. Get a lot of programs. Fill your bulletin. Give them lots of things they can do. You have the coolest playground and the best children's church so we can attract people. And then the pure and simple and robust and life-altering gospel isn't really altering because it's just a metaphor. It's just figurative. It's not something that really plays out as the real cream. And then we'll just pine together for his return and try and endure with each other till he gets here. But the reality is, is the church is the bride of the Lamb now. Now, I'm not talking about a notion. I'm talking about real people with real problems, where the gospel is played out, people that will hurt your feelings, where you have a chance to administer grace as it's been administered to you. We're the the bride of the Lamb. Now, we are the dwelling place of the living God, the spoils of His victory. Now, the second thing is going to be very brief, but it is so important. Second implication is that the church should live as if Satan is bound and Christ is risen and seated and in session. That may be like, yeah, that's a given. But we should consider that the wise men showed up at his birth with gifts for a king. They didn't wait for his second coming. They showed up with gifts for a king at his birth, at his incarnation, because he really reigns. It's not figurative. He really reigns. He earned the seat at the Father's right hand with real blood, and he is risen and seated now. It's not figurative. He's risen and seated now. Having preached through John, we had all these examples in John of these occasions where Jesus makes statements. It sounds like he doesn't really have complete authority. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. That's an example later on. I can do nothing of my own as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. It's all through this book, one occasion after another. When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am he, and I do nothing of my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. This example after example throughout the book that sounds like he's not quite ready, and then before his ascension, what does he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. He reigns and he rules now because of what he did then. And the church should live accordingly. The authority was given him. He says, now I give you and I send you. Go get my nations. Go disciple in my name. Man, we should walk in that. We should live like he's actually seated and like Satan is actually bound. Let's plunder together the strong man's goods. <laughs> Your marriage falling apart? You're in some crisis, some physical crisis? Let's plunder together the strong man's goods, and let's bathe that situation in prayer. Let's pour the gospel into that and say, no, it is life-transforming and life-giving. Given, insert any problem. The gospel is the medicine. It is the goods. The way we live so often, if we put this binding off as a future event, we live like Joshua and Caleb would be if they had been scared of the giants, too. Remember the story where they've been liberated from Egypt, slavery? And they, I mean, they've seen mighty acts of judgment, one right after another. They cross the Red Sea on dry ground. They see Sinai quake. They send spies over into the promised land, the land that they originally came from. They're going back to... And the spies come back and say, man, there's really some scary things over there. I don't know if God is big enough for that. Some scary stuff. And you know what happened as a result of that? They wandered in the desert for 40 years. You have to wonder, is the church wandering because we're scared of some giants? We're scared of some things that have seemed big and insurmountable? Surely the gospel can't impact that. Surely we can't go there. (laughs) That's a hard place. Really. It'd be like Joshua and Caleb before they go into the promised land, before they cross the Jordan on dry ground. Joshua and Caleb getting the people together. Should we tell them the truth? Yeah, I guess we should. Okay, people, gather around. We're about to go into the promised land, and um, it's going to be good. I just need to tell you, I want you to put in a good effort. But you need to know you're really going to get your behinds handed to you. It's going to get worse before it gets better. I mean, you're going to, first off, you're going to see Jericho and they got these massive walls and you're going to be like, whoo! But put in a good effort. (laughs) Give it a go, church. Anybody got a chisel? See if we can take on that wall. Anybody want to take on these peoples? They're scary. Man, the church can live just like that. Thankfully, that didn't happen. Joshua and Caleb said, let's go get them. Our God's bigger than Jericho walls. I know some of your problems, and I know they look like Jericho walls. I know some of them. Our God is bigger, and he reigns, and he rules, and he's seated and in session. And we should plunder the goods of the bound strong man because Christ was stronger. Man. If you went the distance this morning, I hope that ministers to you. We're going to have our Lord's Supper. I'm going to share a quote before we do though. I'm going to share a quote and then a passage. This quote is from a guy named Norman Shepherd. One of the most insidious weapons which Satan has been able to wield against the advancement of the kingdom of God is the inculcation of the belief that though the kingdom must be proclaimed throughout the world, the church really cannot expect that such proclamation will meet with any significant degree of success. (laughs) Listen. One prominent writer in the field of international missions has given expression to the commonly held expectation this way, the New Testament clearly predicts that in spite of great victories of the gospel amongst all nations, the resistance of Satan will continue toward the end. It will even increase so much that Satan incarnate in the human person of the Antichrist will assume once more an almost total control over disobedient mankind. Norman says, these words really constitute a confession of faith. More accurately, they're a confession of anti-faith. Anti-faith in an anti-Christ. Why are Christians so much more confident with respect to victory of an anti-Christ than we are with respect to the triumph of Jesus Christ? Is the worldwide dominion of Satan toward the end of history so much more obviously and unambiguously a revealed truth of Scripture? That is the worldwide dominion of Jesus Christ. That's a tough quote. That's an indictment against the church that expects things to get better, to expect that the gospel's good, but it's really not that capable. We're going to have our Lord's Supper, and I share this passage with you a glimpse from the book of Revelation. Man, it's one that we should drink to, which is what we're doing. We're going to drink to this. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. As we take this supper together, let's not love our lives so much that we're unwilling to even die for. He's worth even that. Let's take and eat. Jesus paid it all. This is hard to believe. Not everybody can see that screen. So, why he'd ever love a wretched worm like me? For I am chief of sinners, and this I understand. I deserve the fullness of the greatest death, buried in the grave of sin and covered in blame. Let me rise and walk and bear your holy name. All this for the glory of Christ my King. Soul now worship wonderfully his majesty. Wrecked by by grace, by God himself, through his only son, crucified at Calvary, the war was done. That's Time for joy was just on the horizon. That time is now. This is a victory meal each week. (laughs) I know how beat down some of y'all are. I know some of the stuff that y'all are going through. But this is where you come and gather and know. You say, no, he who is in us is greater than he who's in the world. He who is in us is greater than he who's in Jericho wall. Man, let's take and eat this victory meal. Take I'm not going to get up at the end of the service, so I'm going to say this now. Um, I have nothing wrong with cantatas or programs or smoke machines. I know God, he can use the likes of you or me that he can use a smoke machine to do something. But um, I know how sometimes I can come across like we've got it figured out and everybody else is messed up. And that's, man, we we lift up our other churches like I would hope they would lift us up. I'm going to share a passage that I just read. And uh, before we take this, that I want us to really have in front of us. And they conquered him, that being Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. I can't tell you how often I'm dealing with a situation or talking with somebody and I wish I had more. But that's because I've forgotten what I do have. Sometimes like, I feel like, man, all I've got for you is the gospel. <laughs> Like, here's my situation. Here's the problem. And I feel like sometimes I speak the gospel into that scenario or situation, and it's like, what else you got? And I really think that is the cream. Paul said, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Okay, got that covered. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all we got. But it's everything. It's all I got. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. We say that all we have is the crucifixion of Christ. We're saying that He is the answer for problem X. He is. And we're saying that Satan was bound, and Christ reigns and rules, and he's victorious. As it says here, that we defeated Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the testimony of his witnesses. Let's testify together as we drink. Lord, we come to you now, and we count it a sweet, sweet privilege uh, to rejoice this morning, uh, to know that the tomb is empty And to know particulars of what was accomplished uh, in your death and in your resurrection. I pray that we would be able to leave here as those who are bold children of Christ. No longer enslaved to the fear of death. uh, But eager to walk in obedience because of what you've accomplished for us. You are great and greatly to be praised and we celebrate your life today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a good Easter.